through the agency of his blood shed for us. Lord, as we open the word now, we ask you to speak to our hearts, to challenge us in the way we think and we live. And in all things, God, as we learn more of your word, not to become better educated, but ultimately to become more like Jesus. And now speak to us, and we will listen. In Jesus' name, amen. There's this uh, new internet sensation that's been going around this week. It's, uh, it's a cute little clip by this kid. He's four years old by the name of Ryland Clark. Actually, he's five years old now, but he made this clip when he was four years old. And he, his family is isolated because of COVID, and so he's singing this, this really angelic song. It's Bob Marley's Three Little Birds. And he's, he's singing it to his relatives. They, in turn, started to share it. This last week, he hit 7 million hits. If you get a chance to look at it, it's really, really cute. The, the guy is saccharine sweet and cute as a bug's ear, and he's singing the Three Little Birds. In case you don't know that, he's singing, Don't worry about a thing, because every little thing is going to be all right. Know the song? Okay, so he's singing that song. Now, of course, there's an element of truth to that, really, you know, because Jesus said something very much like that. Jesus said, don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. That's from Matthew 6, 34. But Jesus did not say, don't worry about a, little, don't worry about a thing because every little thing is going to be all right, because in reality, that's not true. Not everything is going to be all right. Uh, everything is not all right. Uh, to think that way is stupid. It's, it's ignorant. It's wishful thinking. It's, well, it's, it's untrue. Because the reality is, and you know this, that people get hurt in accidents and they're messed up for the rest of their life. And kids get cancer and dads get fired from their jobs and parents get old and old people get dementia and people die. Maybe not here and not now, but other places in the world and other times, and Christians are specifically targeted because of their, their faith. They're, they're persecuted. They often go without medical treatment. Sometimes they starve to death. Christians are sometimes murdered for their faith. In what possible way could you say that's nothing to worry about? I mean, that's something to worry about. Those are real things. The reality is, as cute as it is, every little thing is not going to be all right. I read this week about a Christian uh, in Iran, and he had been tried before Muslim jurists because of his Christian faith. Uh, they, they beat him up. They put him in prison. They dragged him before the court. And, and after this uh, trial and this punishment, he was released but his persecutors thought he was not punished enough. And so they brought him back to court so that they, his sentence would be increased, that he would be beaten more and imprisoned longer. What goes through his mind in, in, a, in a case like that? Does he say, every little thing's going to be all right? Does he say, why did I ever listen to the gospel? Why did I ever believe that the Lord had a good plan for me? Why did I... Uh, why did I hear the, the gospel and respond to it? Why does God pursue me with saving grace and then only to allow me to encounter such miserable affliction? Why did I become a Christian? Why did I bother to share my faith with other people? Why didn't I just keep it to myself? Or does he face his persecution much differently in light of 
the fact that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. Does he say, thank God that he has set his affections upon me long before this trial, long before my life even began. Thank the Lord that he pursued me with this matchless love and this saving grace. Bless the Lord that though they, they beat me and imprison me and they may even kill me, they cannot separate me from the love of God or cheat me out of his grace. You know, none of us face anything like that. We're never persecuted with that kind of harshness, but the reality is that we do face our own kind of dilemmas, you know, whether they're family issues or strained relationships or sicknesses that endure or tragedy in life or death in the family or, you know, a thousand other issues. Maybe, maybe there is opposition to our, our Christian testimony. The reality is we encounter different pressures in, in life because we live in a fallen world and we live in a time when our, when our faith is, is challenged and we experience the wretched fruit of tragedy as Christians. And does that lead us to this silly denial that we should not worry about any little thing because every little thing is going to be all right? Uh, does it lead us to whining about our situation like, this is not what we were expecting when we signed on as Christians. Does it lead us to complain? Does it lead us to having bitter hearts, or resentment towards what the Lord at least allows to come into our life? Because face it, if God is sovereign and he's in control and tragedy comes into my life, God at least didn't do anything to prevent it. He, is, he, he would certainly allow it in his sovereignty and then can you say, well, in that case, every little thing's going to be all right? Or does it, on the other hand, lead you to a point of self-reflection when you focus on the assurance that God is sovereign and he's in control? And I know that God loves me. And even though I can't make any sense out of the tragedy, I know that a sovereign God has allowed only what first passes through his hands before it comes into my life. Now, far too many Christians know too little of the extent of God's sovereign grace. And so they end up cheating themselves out of the provision that God has made to reassure us of his steadfast love when we face those trials of life. And when we don't have that confidence, we, we fuss and we fume and we doubt the love of God and we wonder if God is angry with us and God is disciplining us because we're, we're bad. And we forget that God only allows what comes into our life for what is ultimately our good. To that end, I would like you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 8, verse 28. Honestly, when I was writing this sermon, I was preparing to write from 8.28 through 8.30. That's not a big chunk, is it? That's a pretty little chunk, but I realized as I got into it, it was way too long, and it wouldn't sit with me for two hours. So I, I shortened it up. I, I started thinking, you know, there's... There's 433 verses in Romans, and if I did one verse a week, like I'm doing this week, it would take me eight and a quarter years to get through the book of Romans, and I would lose my audience long before that. You may have also noticed that I'm not actually doing every verse. Sometimes I jump a few verses because they only reinforce what the previous verse, verses have been saying. So I'm trying to keep the thought moving forward. I'm trying to keep moving forward um, without 
getting bogged down. Anyway, the verse that we we're looking at today is a, a very familiar verse. Every Christian knows this verse, and it is a favorite verse for people to commit to memory, and unfortunately, it's one of those verses that's universally quoted to others when they're facing hard times and a perplexing crisis. But almost always when this verse is quoted out of context, it's usually misquoted and misapplied. So what does this verse actually say and what does it actually mean? Now, if you look at where we've been in Romans chapter 8 alone, um, Romans chapter 8 is teaching that God is sovereign. He is sovereign in salvation and he is sovereign in our suffering. And we see in Romans 8, 17 and 18, we see the theme being set here where we, the children of God are fellow heirs of Christ. We remember we were there last week. We are fellow heirs of Christ. If we suffer with him, we will also be glorified with him. And then from uh, verse 18 to 30, Paul is now meditating on the connection between suffering and sovereignty, and he does so by illustrating four purposes. Again, we're still, we're still in review mode here. Um, the first purpose... Uh, first phase of all that, he says that creation groans, creation longs for the revealing of the sons of God. It, it groans to be released from its bondage to corruption. Um, secondly, believers groan. We groan inwardly as we wait for our redemption. We have been saved. We are being saved. Our salvation is finally complete when Christ returns and resurrects our body and makes us fully human again. And so we, we talk about that we, that we have this groaning inwardly for the redemption that we're still waiting for. That's, uh, uh, I forgot where we were. Anyway, the third phase is that the Holy Spirit himself groans. He, he assists, he comes alongside us to help us in our weakness. And now fourth that we're looking at today, um, that there's, uh, for those who love God, the Sovereign Lord superintends history to uh, seal our goodness and to fulfill His promises to us. In Romans 8, 28 through 30, and we're not going to cover all that today, assures the believer that God is providentially, He is in control of all things, but especially He's in control of our salvation. We see this providential action of God, this sovereign care of God, and where we're going next week in foreknowledge, predestination, justification, and glory. I'm not making up those words. They're in the Bible. If you don't like those words, use a knife and cut them back out. But that's where we're going next week, and that's called the golden chain. But the point is, throughout, God pledges his abiding love, even in our trials. Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, remember last week we talked about we don't know. And here he begins by saying, and we know. We don't know, and we know. The first, it, knowing that which we don't know, concerns the details of what God is doing in our lives. We don't know what God is what God is doing. We can't make sense out of that. We don't know what his purposes are. We don't understand these things. They happen in our life and we puzzle over them because 
We don't know. God hasn't revealed that to us. And now he reverses and says, but this we do know. Even though we don't know what God is doing, we know that God is doing good for us. Even though we can't understand the trials that we're going through, we don't know what God has got in mind for us. We do know this, that God has a plan and it is good. And so he teaches us quite simply that God has called us for this good and what is the good? He has called us for his purpose to be like his son. So he must have a purpose, he must have a place. We know that he's working all of the things together that we don't understand, but we understand and we believe that he's doing it for his good purpose. What a tremendous encouragement that would be when you are perplexed about why these difficult things can happen in our lives. Yet, you have to confess that this verse also poses a, an obvious problem, and that is, the statement is, in all things, God works good for those that love him. And we want to know, how is that possible? How is it possible when we clearly see in our life and in the world around us all sorts of, of evil? We see all kinds of, of things that are wrong. We see a world that is filled with, with hatred. Uh, we see good people suffering. We see um, people that, 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 are, that love God, we see them go through all kinds of really bad things. When I was in seminary, a fellow classmate of mine in the Master of Divinity program, I worked for UPS as a supervisor, and this fellow, this friend of mine, worked for, I think it was Brinks, but it was an armored car company. And while he was a guard in the armored car company, um, his armored car was robbed and he was murdered. So here's a guy, he and I are in parallel tracks. He, was he married, do you remember? So we're on parallel tracks. We're in seminary together preparing for a life of ministry and God blesses me and this guy God allows to get murdered. And you gotta wonder in what way, in what universe is that possibly a good thing? How can you believe the verses that we're looking at today and still affirm when a seminary student gets murdered in an, a, a robbery that this is a good thing? And yet Paul says, we know that in all things God works together for the good of those who love him. But do we really know that? I mean, when times are good and when you have a steady job, when your family's doing well, when your kids are are doing well in school, when, they're, when no one close to you is sick, when it's been a while since anyone close to you has died. You know, in times like this, it's really easy to say, well, yeah, we know all things are good. That's not what the text says, by the way. And we can easily affirm, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. But the challenge before us is, what about all the other times? What about all those exceptional times like I just mentioned to you. In times like that, do you really know, are you really confident that God is working good for you? Now, let's back up a little bit because there's four qualifications that we can look at in this text. Each one of them is bracketed by, or, or, uh, or uh, not bracketed by, it's defined by a question. Each one of these four conditions is defined by a question. And the first question is, to whom does this promise apply? Because obviously it does not apply to everyone. 
You can't say that God's working everyone's good for them. Now, who's he talking about? Well, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. He's specifically talking about Christians here, and he's saying that everything works for those goods. And if you look ahead to the, the next verse, whom God has predestined to what? To be conformed to the likeness of his son. That is the good that God is working for. Not your amusement, not your happiness, not your health, not your financial ability. God is working for the good to make you conform to the likeness of his son. Now, the second qualification, also couched in a question, is what is meant by good? Because it's an important question, because if good means rich, then we would see that this is not true because most Christians throughout time, and, and even today, most Christians are not rich in the world's possessions. So it's not true that whatever the good is, is wealth. And most Christians um, are not necessarily healthy, and not all believers um, are successful or, or admired or even happy in the sense that the world judges that. So whatever the good is can't be any of these things. The reality is that God frequently asks Christians to endure failure and, and scorn and distressing personal experiences and, and severe disappointment. So whatever the good means, it can't mean rich or healthy or successful or admired or, or happy in the sense of the world. And so again, the answer comes, the good that he is working for is to be made like Jesus, that we are conformed or transformed. We are being changed from who we are to being changed into the likeness of his son. So that's the good that he's talking about. Ray Stedman says that that is what life is all about, being changed from who we are now to be transformed into Christ-likeness. And so we can see then, at least theoretically, we can see how God could use sickness and suffering and persecution and grief if he's in the process of molding us into the likeness of his son. Now, the third qualification, uh, and also formed in the sense of a question, are the things that God uses for this good end, are they good in themselves or only in their effect? And again, obviously, we can say that they are not good in themselves. You, in what sense, in what world is sickness good or suffering or persecution or, or grief or any of those other things? You know, hatred is not love. Death is not life. Grief is not joy. The world is full of evil. The point is that God uses these things, all of these things, including our own failures, including our own sin, and God uses these things which are not good in themselves towards a good end. That God brings good out of evil. Daniel Doriani says, God draws straight lines with crooked sticks, overseeing all elements so that they bring good to those who love him. So obviously this does not mean that God works everything out as we wish he would work it out or as we hope things all would work out. Now, we may wish for health and wealth and a trouble-free life, 
But the reality is that God frequently wants something better for us than all of these things that we say are the good of life because he is working for a greater good. Again, Doriani says, God puts evil to use on a large canvas, painting wars and floods, disease and depression into his purposes. So you can apply Paul's message to individuals and, and to families, and you can see how we have to sometimes endure illness and, and endure unemployment and, and divorce and death. And none of these things are good. There is ungood, not a word, but there is ungood as you can possibly be. And yet God is using these ungood things for a good purpose. And we're thankful for that. Because the reality is that happiness comes and goes. Joy is what the Lord promises us. And joy comes from Christ-like character. And sadly, worse than sadly, um, embarrassingly, I hear Christians use all things work together for good as some kind of a slogan or panacea. And they use it at terribly inappropriate times. After a, a tragic death, someone will come alongside and say, well, it's really too bad that your wife died. But remember, God works all things for good. It's not helpful. And it, it's actually, it's, it's an irresponsible thing to say because it excuses us from the labor of, of listening um, quietly and, and caring for someone. You know, in a time like that, they don't need your words. They just need to know you care. Remember, Job's friends were at their very best when they said nothing. What's that song, uh, you say it best when you say nothing at all? And when did they start messing up? When they opened their mouths. You know, then they started running, uh, running a field. So Paul's message here is that, you know, we can expect sorrow and we can expect hardship and we can expect these kind of griefs and disappointments in life and know that while these things are not good, that God will still use them in developing good in us. He's accomplishing his purposes. But, but that can sometimes take years. That, that path can unfold for, after a very long time. And we want instant results. And we want instant explanations. We want instant sense out of it all. We may not understand what God is doing, but we do know why God is doing it, because that's the process through our salvation and our maturation, our good. Now, the fourth, the final qualification or question that comes here is, what's our relationship to God during these circumstances? And Paul gives us the answer when he says, we know. Notice he doesn't say we feel or we see or we think or we take these intuitively. He's, he's saying, we know. Sometimes we don't feel like God is in control of our lives. We don't feel like God is doing good towards us. Sometimes we can't see how any of this makes any sense. The text simply says, we know. Paul's no sentimentalist. Here's a guy that's experienced a lot of hardship in life. He was persecuted. He was beat up, he was imprisoned, he was shipwrecked. He'd been attacked, he'd been slandered, he'd been attacked by his own countrymen. And Paul doesn't go around saying, 
you know, what a wonderful world we live in. You know, I just want to tell you what a, what a super fun time, how pleasant my missionary experiences have been. He, he's very candid about it's been tough. I've faced a lot of hardships. He says in 2 Corinthians 4 that he's hard-pressed on every side, perplexed, struck down. And yet, in all of that, he can attest that he knows through this all, God is sovereignly working out his own greater purposes in Paul's life. How does Paul know that, by the way? How does Paul know that all these tragedies that he's experiencing, God is working good out of them? Well, because God told him, and now he's telling you, that God works good through these tragedies of life. All things God works together for the good of those who love him. Well, a good case in point is Joseph's story. Uh, back to Genesis, where are we? Genesis, close to Genesis 50. I don't remember where it starts. Remember Joseph? Joseph is a young boy. He's in his teens. Uh, he's not yet 17 yet. And he's a favorite of his father. His father bestows favors on him. You know the story of Joseph and his coat of many colors. And Joseph has these visions from God, true visions from God, not fictitious ones. And you know his brothers loved him for it. His brothers hated him. Uh, Joseph gets sent on an errand, go check on your brothers and see how they're doing up in Dothan. Joseph goes up there and his brothers hate him and they decide to do away with him. Initially, they throw him in a dry cistern, a place to collect water during the wet season so he'd have it during the dry season and they're just going to let him die down there. But as fortune would happen, it just so happens that at just that time, there's a group of Midians that are coming through. They're on their way down to trade in Egypt. His brothers decide we can get rid of Joseph and make a little money on the side, so they sell him to the Midianites. Midianites get to Egypt. They just so happen to sell him to Potiphar, a high-ranking official in the Egyptian government. He does exceptionally well, but think about it. He doesn't know the language. He doesn't know the culture. He's 17 now when, he's, when he becomes a slave in Potiphar's family. He does very well until Potiphar's wife takes an eye for Joseph. Joseph does not reciprocate her amorous affection, and she accuses him of inappropriate behavior, and Joseph ends up in jail. He's in jail for a very long time without any explanation. He meets the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker. <laughs> he interprets a vision for them. He says, when you get out of here, remember me. They don't remember him. And he remains in jail two more years. Which part of this is good? The being hated by your brothers, the being thrown into a cistern, the being sold into slavery, the being falsely accused of inappropriate sexual behavior, being thrown into prison, being left into prison and not remembered. Where do we get to the good part? Well, after some time, after two years now, the, 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 the uh, Pharaoh has a vision. One of the guys remembers, hey, you know what? I met, I met a guy in prison that could do understand visions. And so Joseph is brought. He explains the vision. The, the Pharaoh is so impressed, he promotes Joseph instantly on the spot, 
puts him second in charge in all, in all Egypt to tend for the upcoming famine. His brothers end up coming down for famine relief. They don't know it's Joseph. They see somebody who's an Egyptian official, a very high-ranking Egyptian official, and they're terrified by him. Now we're in Genesis 50-something. We're towards the end of Genesis chapter 50. And the brothers are standing before Joseph, and Joseph reveals that he really is their brother, and they're nervous because they sold him out. And what does Joseph say? He says, you meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. See, what a perfect example of what we're talking about here today. You know, that we think trash has come into our life. God is either not in control, he's not sovereign, or he's not loving. And we resent God because this is not good, whatever it is that's come into our life. But we have to agree with Joseph that God intends for the good. You know, the Greeks and the Romans were a lot like the Westerners today. They had a lot of cliche sayings like, don't worry, everything will be all right. Fate will work for you. But that's just nonsense. You know, try telling that to tens of millions of people that literally starve to death. Tell them God has their good in mind. Tell them everything's going to work out fine. Or tell Christians living in a totalitarian state where they're not free to be Christians, God just intends their good. See, the thing is, unless you have a hope of eternal glory, then these tragedies are just that. They're just tragedies. There's nothing good in them unless God is using them. They're just tragedy and waste and ruin and destruction and despair and, and hopelessness. There's no promise outside of those who are in Christ Jesus. Only when God is working for the good of those who love him, whom he loves, does this all make sense. But by the way, who is making the good out of these tragedies? God is. God is superintending them. Paul's not saying that God prevents bad things from happening to his children. You were lied to if someone told you if you become a Christian, all your problems would go away, everything would make sense, and there'd be nothing but blessing for you. After all, you are princes and princesses, children of the king, and all that can come into your hand from God are good things because you're his beloved children. God lets his beloved children go through these hardships because he has something better in mind for them than wealth, health, admiration of others. I used to be friends with these uh, very rich people in Denver when I was in seminary. Um, There's an older couple, and they had collected art. They had tons of art in their house. In their basement, they had original oil paintings just leaning against the wall backwards. There'd be five or six of them stacked in a row all over the basement walls of these really valuable paintings because there was no place to hang them in their house. And they, uh, Mrs. McAdams, who, was, who I was particularly close to, she invited me to, to look at this one uh, wall hanging, and it was backwards because she didn't want the sun to fade it. It was a tapestry. And so I saw the back of this tapestry first. And you know what it looked like? 
it looked like throw up. It was orange and it had knots and cross ties and stuff like that. Have you ever looked at the back of a cross stitch? It kind of looked like that, only multiplied a thousand times. It was the ugliest thing I'd ever seen, especially because it had a lot of this hunter orange color. Who makes a tapestry out of hunter orange? You know, turns out if you flip it over, it was a beautiful tapestry. And it, she showed me that this tapestry was actually in an art book. You know, here's this tapestry made by this Portuguese artist. It was a beautiful, beautiful tapestry. But when you look at it first face, prima facie, when you look at it initially, it was the most ugly thing I'd ever seen. Now, why would you spend money on something like that? This is what we see, the backside of the tapestry. We see something that is nonsensical, which is ugly. There's a lot of knots and frayed ends. But it's not till we get to the very end when we stand before God and he says, yeah, but let's look at the front side of the tapestry that I was building out of your life. And you go, oh, now that makes sense to me. In all things, God was working for our good. No matter what the situation we were in, no matter what the suffering, the persecution, our own sinful failures, our lack of faith, our abuse from other Christians, and yet through all these things, God was working for our good through all things, in all circumstances, in all events. God was working even in the evil that he allowed to come into our life. Because let's face it, not all things are good. He's not an illusionist. He's not saying everything's fine, everything's under control. He uses the word here, uh, the, the word as uh, synergio, from which we get the word synergy or synergism. Uh, it means that these things cooperate for a common conclusion, a common good in the end. And so that's what Paul is saying, that God uses the synergy of good things, of bad things, of love and hate, of success and failure, of faith and your lack of faith. And he's using all of these things. He's weaving them together. You know, they say in a Persian rug, when they're the, not, the, you have a whole bunch of uh, students and one master that are weaving these per, Persian rugs. And so the master's watching as the students are weaving these rugs. And every so often, the student will make a mistake and mess up the pattern. But the master will not pull out the mistakes. He will now weave the mistake into a, a different pattern. And the most valuable rugs are the ones that really have had the most mistakes in them because the master has taken the mistakes and woven them into a beautiful pattern. That's what the Lord's doing in your life. It's not that they're not failures or mistakes or errors, or sin, or tragedy. The point is not that he shelters you from those things. The point is he's working those things into a beautiful masterpiece. We are, in fact, actors in the theater of the tragic because life is full of tragedy. But here, Romans 8.28 is teaching us that ultimately, not immediately but ultimately there are no tragedies for the Christians it's the tragedy that we face now is is a blessing 
uh, later. Uh, tragic is, is not temporary. It's, it's, it's not, or it is temporary. It's not permanent. The, the, the tragedy is it's real, but God is using those for something better. But I want to caution you too that there's a flip side to that coin. And that is for the unbeliever who persists in his unbelief, he, yet he receives blessing after blessing from God. He receives these good things from the hand of God, and yet um, he rejects God. He persists in his, his disbelief and his lack of gratefulness to God. And God warns us, uh, look back to Romans chapter 2, verse 3 through 5. God warns us, and all these blessings that he's bestowing on the unbeliever ultimately work to his judgment. They become this depository of sin that God uses to judge. He says, in accordance with the hardness of your impenitent heart, you're treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each one according to his deeds. Every blessing that goes unacknowledged, unthanked, unappreciated by the unbeliever ends up a true tragedy. It's a kind of a topsy-turvy backward thing, isn't it? The tragedy that we Christians face now when we believe and we trust and we acknowledge that we have a sovereign God who loves us and only wants good for us ends up for us a blessing and all of the blessing that God is bestowing on the unbeliever, the impenitent ends up as a tragedy. But we affirm in all of these things that God is working for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. Now let's go back to little Ryland Clark and Bob Marley's Three Little Birds and don't worry about a thing because every little thing is going to be all right. Well, not from our perspective, and that's for sure. But the reality is that God does use every little thing for our ultimate good, to make us more like Jesus, even the things that hurt. Let's pray, and I'll invite the men to come forward, and um, whoever's leading us with our communion message, our communion song. We have the slides up. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our sins. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. 
And by his wounds, oh, by his wounds we are healed. We are healed by your sacrifice in the life that you gave. We are healed for you paid the price. By your grace we are saved. We are saved. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our sins. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, oh, by his wounds, we are healed. We are healed by your sacrifice in the life that you gave. We are healed for you paid the price. By your grace we are saved. We are saved. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. For my pardon, this I see. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. For my cleansing, this my plea. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow no other fount i know nothing but the blood of jesus nothing can for sin atone Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Not of good that I have done. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow no other fount i know nothing but the blood of jesus this is 
nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my righteousness, nothing but the blood of Jesus. In my uh, own devotional readings, I'm in Leviticus right now. Now, be honest. When was the last time you heard a communion message out of Leviticus? <laughs> so, one thing that really struck me as I was reading that, and I thought, you know what, this would make a really good communion message, because as Leviticus opens, Moses is being told by God, these are the different requirements when a, when a person sins. This is the offering that has to be given. And he starts out with, when the priest sins, you have to do this and this and this. When a person has a guilt offering, they have to do this and this and this. And then you get to Leviticus 4.27. And it says, if any one of the common people sins unintentionally in doing any one of the things that the Lord's commandments ought not to be done and realizes his guilt or the sin which he has committed is made known to him, he shall bring for his offering a goat without blemish for his sin which he's committed. He shall lay his hand on the head of the sin offering and kill the sin offering in the place of the burnt offering. And the priest shall take some of the blood with his finger and put it on the horns of the altar off and pour out all the rest of the blood on the base of the altar and all its fat shall be removed and the fat, when it's removed, uh, the priest shall burn it on the altar for a pleasing aroma to the Lord, and the priest shall make atonement for him, and he shall be forgiven. When was the last time you even cared about a time when you unintentionally sinned? And what was your response when you, were, when you discovered that you had sinned un unintentionally? You know what your response was? You shrugged your shoulders. Oh, well. Because you know what? Even when we sin deliberately, even when our sin borders on the line of treachery, treason, we think so lightly of our sin, we think, well, I'll just mention it to God. After all, God's in the business of forgiving sin. That's what he does. It's his job. He has to. If I say sorry, he has to forgive me. See, the whole point of these Levitical offerings was to point out how terrible sin is in the sight of God and how desperately wretched our condition. Whether you meant to or not, God is holy and you have violated his holiness. And in an unintentional sin, somebody had to die and the blood had to be spelt. I think we think so lightly of it that uh, we don't understand God's holiness. We don't understand how terribly awful the real price that all those sacrifices looked forward to when God would have to judge his own son and his blood would be spilt and he would be killed and that sacrifice to be in place of my own. This is why we come every single month and we come back to this communion table we're not just remembering that the disciples all sat around on one side of the table, according to da Vinci, and had a good dinner, 
and went out for the night, we are remembering that this looked forward to the cross. It looked back at all the sacrifices which had been done before, which were only pictures of the real sacrifice, the ultimate sacrifice, and what a terrible cost it was to God. So Paul says, what I've received from the Lord, I also pass on to you. Then on the night he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, take this and eat it. This is my body, which was given for you. This is the body of the Lord Jesus Christ, which was given for you. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Whenever you eat this bread or drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is the blood of Jesus Christ, which alone satisfies God's anger against your sin. The blood of Jesus shed for you. Let's pray. We've taken these common elements, God, and we have applied them for a holy, sacred purpose to represent the body of Jesus lived in perfect obedience, a lamb without spot or blemish, the perfect, acceptable sacrifice for you. And we remember in this cup that he was murdered, he was killed, he was executed, his blood shed to satisfy your righteousness that you would have no reason to still be angry at us for our sin. But because of his perfect sacrifice, you see nothing but love and mercy towards us. Father, we ask that you would set aside these common, ordinary lives, make us exceptional. As you're in the process of making us more like Jesus through hardships and trials and blessings, through failures, through successes, and you're using all of these things to make us like Jesus, and we give you thanks for it. May we leave this place from this communion and this time of worship not only more knowledgeable and more committed and reanimated, but may we leave here changed. Help us to live lives that bring you glory and honor, that reflect the good things that you are doing in our life and our trust in you. And when we suffer hardships, may we suffer like Christians who believe in a loving God. We pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please stand with us for this last song.
face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.